You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. And um, our family actually has been to uh, California a number of times. Uh, My wife's from California, so when you have family there, you get to go there often. And I don't know if you've been there before, but California is kind of well-known for a lot of things. You know, it's well-known for Hollywood and movies and Disneyland and all these Uh, great things about it, but it's also filled with like natural wonders. Whether it's the the beaches, you know, in the north or the south of the state, or maybe the the mountains in different regions, or the rainy redwood forests, it is filled with all kinds of natural wonders. And we have found ourselves in all kinds of different places, exploring, hiking, walking, and experiencing the natural beauty of California. One of the places that we haven't actually been to, but we've driven near it, is Death Valley. And probably a lot of you have heard of Death Valley. It's just kind of famous, probably because of its name, okay? Death Valley. And it's a place that is barren and rugged. It's like a desert. It hardly rains at all, except this year it got a bunch of rain. But it's like, it's a place where not a lot can survive other than things that are made to be in there. But just eight miles away from the edge of Death Valley is Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain peak in California. So you can actually hike up to the top of Mount Whitney, And on a clear day, you can see right into Death Valley. Or you could be in Death Valley, and you could look straight over, and you could see the peak of Mount Whitney. The high part and the low part. In Ephesians 1 through 10 here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul is giving us a short description of the gospel And he goes from the lowest valley, death valley, to the highest mountaintop, Mount Whitney. And then from that place, he says, there's actually a a pathway and a, a journey set out for you by God. And so in these short little verses, we're going to look at this very same thing. It's, it's laid out so easily for us to read in these 10 verses that Paul is going to take us to the depths of the valley, to the heights of the mountain, and then he's going to set a pathway for us. And here's what Paul has been doing, actually from the beginning of the book. Okay, for, So for the last two weeks, and now this week included, Paul is wanting us to to get this, and it's, I I wrote it out so we can hear it clearly. Clarity of identity leads to clarity of purpose. This is what Paul is doing, and he's been doing through all of chapter one, and he's still doing it now. Clarity of identity leads to clarity of purpose, and he's going to do that right for us here in the first ten verses. So, Paul was no stranger of the gospel, And now he's going to lay it out for us. It was given to him by Jesus Christ. So Paul was a resister of the gospel of Jesus. He was a persecutor of people who followed it. And then Jesus met him on the road. And then Jesus said, okay, Paul, this is going to be your life's work. 
from now on, this is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be going out among the Gentile nations, and you're going to tell them what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. This, that's it. That's your focus, Paul, for the rest of your life. So here he comes now to verses 1 through 10 with another explanation of the gospel. And he starts here in verse 1. Verse 1, he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul says this is the starting point, that you were dead in trespasses and sins. There's two types of deaths that we have. The first death that all of us will experience is the physical death that awaits us. Whether it's at age 50, at age 80, if you make it to 100, physical death is coming for every single one of us. But the second death that is out there, that is actually a a current reality, is spiritual death. And this is what Paul is talking about here. That mankind, people, men and women, before they know Christ, are spiritually dead before him. So he uses two words here. That you are dead in your trespasses and in your sin. These two words are basically meaning the same thing, but they're a little bit different. Trespasses, that word means to make a misstep. Okay, so if you're walking down a path and it's like, follow this path, you make a misstep. You trip on something, whatever it is, you make a misstep. A sin, this word sin here means to miss the mark. So this means you're actually aiming for something, but when you do aim for something, you still miss it. So Paul's saying, listen, the sin that, that so like affects all of us is sins that we do by accident. We might not even know that we're always doing them. They are sins of omission. They are just happening because of who we are. Or they are sins of what, what he calls commission. They are sins that we are deliberately doing. We're aiming at something and we miss that target. And Paul says the result then is that leaves us dead before God separated from God. And this only makes real sense when we understand that God is perfectly holy. God is is so different than we are that any, any sin that is in our lives separates us from him. So to understand sin, we really have to have clear in our minds this idea of the holiness of God. In Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12, Actually, let me just go to verse 13. He says this, Your eyes, this is Habakkuk talking to God. He's in a conversation with God. He says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Habakkuk is saying, this is who you are, God. You're so perfect. You're so holy. You're so separate, which is the beautiful thing about who God is. He is so separated from sin that any wrongdoing trespasses or sins, they only result in our separation from God. And so then Paul goes on. He says, okay, then this is, that's what sin is. That's what it does. Now here's the the quality of it. Here's kind of some more fleshing out of what it is. Verses 2 and 3. He says this, Verse 2 says, in which you once walked. So this is the sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So a couple of times here we see Paul is using this word following, and it's, it's a right translation. Obviously, it, it fits. They put it in there. But the word itself doesn't maybe have the weight of what it should. Because that word for following is actually the word for you are being, like you're being mastered or being controlled by these things. So Paul says, in our sinfulness, in our trespasses and sin, we're dead. But not only are we dead, we're actually like enslaved to what? The first is to the course of the world around us. So the sinful world that are, is around us is trying to enslave us to its ways, but then also from our own passions. So from within us. So we can't just like point at, at that, whatever that is, out there is all bad. No, it's actually inside of us. The sin nature wants to enslave us which is what Evan was just reading about in Romans 6, wants to hold us in bondage to a, to a slavery, to, to sinful ways, to passions, to being led by our own desires alone. And Paul says there's no, there's no categories that kind of get out from under this. So you'll see in verse 1, he says, you, and that you is actually talking about the Gentile audience, so the non religious audience that he was addressing, the non-Jewish audience. But then later on in verse 3, he's saying we. That's Paul's talking about himself, those who are the Jewish people. So he's saying there's no like kind of in-group and kind of out-group. There's no you were born in a Christian family. Or there's no like you went to youth group. Or you weren't in youth group. There's no category that kind of clears you up and is like, oh, phew, sins doesn't touch me because I grew up in a Christian family, you know? There's no clarity like that. Paul says, every single one of us, those who have known the truth, who haven't known the truth, every single one of us bear this weight of separated from God because of sins that we choose to do, that we don't choose to do, sin that just affects us through and through. And so Paul says, this is affecting everyone. But have you ever, have you ever tried to make excuses? Maybe I'm the only one, okay? Have you ever tried to make excuses of like, well, like there's, there's other extenuating circumstances that lead to my sinfulness. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he actually talks about that a little bit. He says, you know, when it, when it came to evening time, when he's kind of climbing into bed and he is making his final confessions to God for the day, he would say that he would, you know, totally recognize that his day, using his words, he would say that his days were filled with sulking, sneering, and snubbing. Okay, those are English words, okay? We don't use those a lot. Sulking, sneering, and snubbing. That's what his days were filled with. And he would confess it to God, and he would say, like, oh, man, Lord, I don't know, I've done these things, this is affecting me. But then he would, like, say... But maybe it wasn't really my fault. You know, like maybe people were pushing my buttons. You know, someone was like kind of nasty towards me. Someone cut me off on the highway. Like 
Other people got problems, you know, and they're like affecting my life. And so my sin is a result actually of other people. So Lewis describes this as, and only Lewis can do this, as rats in the cellar. Okay, this is what he says. It's like rats in the cellar. He says this, If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. So Lewis says, listen, our sins are like the rats in the cellar. And if we slowly go in, we can pretend that they're not there. Because they got time to scurry away. So no problems in your life, no mean people. You might almost think like, I got this thing. I'm not really that bad of a person. But when someone pushes your buttons or you run into the basement, then you see the rats. Lewis is saying, listen, the rats are there. Whether you go in slowly or you go in quickly. He goes on to say, but what about like when I'm like kind of nice? He says, and this applies to my good actions too. How many of them were done for the right motive? How many for fear of public opinion or a desire to show off? So Lewis is echoing what Paul is saying in the text here that from top to bottom, we are people who are locked in sinfulness. Not a message that like you're going to hear everywhere. Not a message that is like easy to, to kind of say publicly to announce. But this is what Paul is saying. We are in sin. And we are like Dead men, dead women walking. Death Valley is real, but there's a mountaintop. There's a mountaintop of truth waiting for us. And Paul here shifts the story and he tells us what actually God has done. So listen now to the mountaintop, verses four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, God has intervened. God has done something. Did you know that Christmas is 99 days away from today? Christmas morning, okay? Kids, get your lists together, okay? Parents, I'm just reminding you. This is your warning. Christmas is 99 days from today. Christmas is an amazing time. I love the Christmas season. It's a time where we actually think together, especially as Christians, about this intervening work that Jesus has done for us, that Jesus came and incarnated, or the word means he tabernacled, his, the presence of God came down again on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a time where we remember that he came for us. He came to, to save us from our sins. But that is not the only time that intervention has come down. God has been working from the beginning of time, and we talked about this last week and the week before, 
God has been planning this intervention, this rescue mission that, that we all need because of, you know, verses 1 through 3, all the things that kind of weigh us down, all the sin, this intervention of Jesus' glorious presence has been in the plans for thousands of years. And Paul here is saying, God has made this astounding effort to reach us. God has brazenly stepped out and placed himself at the front of the solution of our sin. And what makes it so brazen, what makes it so astounding, is that it's God who is acting. You see that in verse 4? But God. God is the one who is the main actor in finding the solution to the sin, the sin problem that we face. God has stood out and said, I'm going to do it. Because most of the time when there's an issue, the way that it's resolved is the person who has done the wrong is the one who should make restitution. Remember when you were a kid, if you had siblings, if you're an only child, you won't know this experience as well, but when you got siblings, you fight, maybe like one of you, like you punch the other one or something really bad or scratching, whatever it is, okay? Um, and if your parents found out what would they do? Hopefully they're trying to find a, like a solution to the problem here. And what they would say is, you know, if, if Sally is the one who has scratched Molly, I'm just throwing names in here, okay? Sally and Molly. Sally is the one who needs to say sorry for what she's done. Make this right. You have wronged someone, so apologize or get the band-aids, whatever needs to be done to make this right. God is the offended party. God is the one who has been wronged. God is the one who, because of our sin, there's a separation that exists. And so the religious person within us maybe says, okay, well, I can make this right then. I can live a good life. I can be kind. I can do good deeds. But Paul here is saying, this is what the gospel is actually. God has acted. God has worked on our behalf. It says that he has loved us. He has made us alive. And all of these things, kind of capsulizing it, all of, kind of summing it up, all of these things are by grace. Undeserved kindness. All by grace that God does these things for us. Out of love, out of mercy, he forgives. And he is the one who acts Philip Yancey is well known for writing about grace. He's written all kinds of books about grace. He's talked about it a lot. And he describes grace as like water flowing down. It goes into the, to the lowest parts. It goes everywhere. So there's this picture of the Grand Canyon. This is a place that I've never been to again. But it's an example of the flow of water carving out this whole canyon here. And Philip Yancey's from Colorado, and so he says, the, the grace of God is like this. It's like uh, the tip of the mountain that is frozen. The water is all there, but then when, once warmth comes, it begins to kind of trickle down, and as spring comes, it flows down and down. It turns into little creeks. It can turn into 
uh, a river, and then eventually it flows into places like this, and it is just continuing to work and work and work. Yancey says this, grace is like that, this flowing of water. It flows to the lowest part, to the undeserving, and in the process, it completely changes the landscape of society. This is what grace is. It's so overwhelming. It's so beautiful. It changes hearts. It changes lives. It's the grace of God. And the Apostle Paul wants us to just see that and, and know it. And it's the gospel message that, that Paul gave his life to preaching. And Paul used a word, that word gospel, is a word that was very familiar to the Roman society. This was not a new word that he was bringing into their vocabulary. This was a word that they would regularly hear used. And, and this would be the context of using that word. The Roman army would go out to a place, maybe a, a new land, or maybe they would go to, to a city that was being a problem, and the army would go there, and if everything would go right, they would crush the enemy. They would just lay siege to this place, and they would conquer it and take all the spoils from it. And then the Roman army would march back to Rome or to whatever capital city was, you know, vibrant at the time. And they would have all the spoils. And they would have all the old leaders of that place. And they would say, we have conquered them. And then with that message, spokesmen would go out throughout the Roman Empire and they would say the gospel. They would tell the good news that a victory had been won. And that's the word that Paul uses when he says, this is what Christ has done for us. This is what Jesus has done. Sin in our hearts, in the world, has been conquered, has been defeated. It's been crushed. And Jesus now is this victorious king walking back into the city of God. And Paul says, that is the gospel it is the good news of Jesus Christ. He saves us. He self-sacrifices himself to save us, to bring this relationship back together. God's people, us, and God himself. Back to unity, all because of grace. So Paul summarizes that then in verses 8 and 9. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul says, this is the gospel. You could never save yourself. Nothing you could do. No amount of going to the gathering. No amount of going to missional family. No amount of just reading, 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 reading. None of those things save you. They never could and they never can. Paul says, your salvation is completely wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in what Jesus has done. All we are called to do is put our trust, put our faith in what Jesus has done. No work of our own will save us. So that there's no boasting. We don't point at anything that we've done. All we're doing for the rest of our lives and for eternity is pointing to Jesus. He did everything for us. And we are saved by grace. So, the contrast. Do you see the contrast? Death Valley. 
and in the heights of the mountaintop of the gospel. And then Paul says, there is actually now, when you kind of get to the peak of that mountaintop, when you experience the grace of God, there's a pathway now. There's a road for you. There's purpose for you in all the rest of the days that you have. Purpose for what God has for you. And so he says here in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So remember I said in the beginning, clarity of identity leads to clarity of purpose. So Paul says, this is your identity. And he he kind of quickly clarifies our identity one more time. He says, we are his workmanship. We are a creation of God's, but it's not just a creation. It's not just like a thing. This, I had to look this word up this week just to get the, the sense of it. And workmanship, the, the original Greek word that he's using is pima, and it's spelled P-O-I-E-M-A. It's actually where we get the word poem from. And that word means literally uh, a thing of his making, or maybe more accurately, a work of art. We are God's work of art. God is an artist. He is the primary artist. So when we make art, we're actually copying God. We're actually following in his footsteps. He is the first artist, and he says, we are his workmanship. This is part of our identity again, is understanding who are we. And so Paul says, when we're in Christ, we are this work of art that is ready for all that God has in store for us. He's been working on it. So we are his creation before we are in Christ. But now Paul says, when you're in Christ, there's a new level of preparedness for you to be active in this world, for you to live out your purpose, wherever it is, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a stay-at-home dad, whatever your circumstance God has built into your DNA, you're his workmanship, you're his work of art, a purpose. So he calls these, these actual things are good works. But Paul doesn't get so specific to tell us like what those works are. Okay, he doesn't say, um, you know, your neighbor is going to need a cup of sugar on September, you know, 13th, 2024. Okay, he doesn't get that specific to tell you what it is exactly that you're going to do. But he says, there's works that are being prepared for you. So I just wanted to highlight here quickly three practices to kind of open your life up to the possibility of what God is preparing and planning for you. Ways to live so that you can actually live out his purposes without knowing all the details. We don't know all the details. So the first is this, develop the practice of service. Develop the practice of service. Live a life that is filled with an openness to serving other people. Serving people at your work. Serving people in your neighborhood serving people in the church. And what you will discover when that is a part of your daily life, you'll find that God brings these moments into your life. 
moments of good work that he calls them here in verse 10. They're moments that God has been preparing. You didn't know they were there, but you're serving out of a gratitude to Christ, and now they present themselves. Second, develop the practice of space. Space in your life for these opportunities to come. Is your life and my life so full, so compressed with all kinds of things that if an opportunity came, it wouldn't even be able to wedge into your schedule. It'd just like bounce off the schedule because it's so full. God is preparing some works. Is there space in our lives for these works to actually fit in so that we can be used by God? And then lastly, develop the practice of sight. Seeing the needs around you. Learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 6, uh, Jesus and the disciples are out there. Jesus is teaching and he's feeding the fire, or he's not feeding them yet. He's, he is teaching them and suddenly the disciples are looking around and they're saying, okay, Jesus, time for like a lunch break or something. Send everybody into town. We'll grab a snack and then we can reconvene this whole teaching thing. And Jesus in that moment says, you feed them. You feed them. Jesus is saying, this is one of those moments. Disciples, are you seeing it? Those opportunities that they, they kind of slide into your life. Different needs, different relational connections that you've had. And suddenly, you're there. You're on the spot. Train yourself to have the sight to see those needs. Those may be the needs that God has actually been preparing and preparing you to be involved in. So God has been preparing these works for you and I, and we need to be aware of them. So practice service, practice space, and practice sight. For all of us, we might be waiting for the ideal situation to come along. For, for life to just be going smooth. I don't know if you think that way. I, sometimes that slips into my mind. Once this season of busyness kind of gets past, once the craziness of this event or that event, then I can take a deep breath and then let the good works come, Lord. I'll be ready. I'm just going to put them in motion. But we know that the longer you live, you realize that that's not how life works. One thing after another keeps coming in. And the opportunities are still there, even in the, the high joy and even in the chaos. I was reading this week about Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you've heard her story. Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, in the 60s, she was on a beautiful summer day. She was out with her sister on a lake, uh, swimming. And she, even by her own words, said she took a reckless, shallow dive, diving into a lake, and hit her head on the bottom and broke two vertebrae in her neck. And was taken to the doctor, and the doctor gave her this prognosis. Johnny, you are paralyzed from the neck down, and this will not be cured for the rest of your life. This is your state. Now, Johnny was a, a Christian, young Christian woman. She was, you know, vibrant. She was athletic. And so suddenly, massive turn. 
And she writes in her many books, and in, there's been some movies made about her. She writes and, and says, there was a moment there when the rehab was beginning in the first couple years where she just wanted to tell her parents, her family, there's nothing for me. Life is taking the turn for the worst. Turn off the light, close the door, just leave me. And in that moment, what actually opened her eye to the, to the possibility that maybe God was doing something else was actually art. She's pretty well-known now. She's well-known for a lot of things, but she's pretty well-known for being an artist. She uses her mouth to hold the paintbrushes and the pencils, and she creates these beautiful works of art. And as she started kind of like really roughly starting in the beginning, she, she had this like thought that maybe it was possible, maybe even in her state, that God was still preparing something for her, that God was still doing something. And so she embarked on this life of constantly being open to the presence of God working around her. And that even in her paralyzed state, God was doing something. God was preparing something for her. She was still his workmanship. And it's a journey that she has been on for years and years and years. And her life has not gotten any easier. In the last 10 years alone, she has battled through two different kinds of cancer. And even now, she, just recently in 2022, she wrote an article called Paralyzed and Blessed, My Unlikely Path to Happiness. And she writes about even today, the struggle of sleeping and the uncomfortableness of having all of these things to help her to live. And she has people that help her get tucked into bed and they have people that help her get ready in the morning. And she wrote this about one of her helpers and the words of encouragement that, that their helper said to her in the morning. She says this, one of my helpers knows all about these nighttime rendezvous with Jesus. So these moments where the pain is there and she's asking the Lord, what are you going to do? And so one night, after she tucked me in, that's her helper, she stood over my paralyzed frame with an open Bible and said, This is you, she said. And then read Psalm 119, 147 to 148. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is saying, you are new in Christ. And this is the promise that you are to hold on to, to remind yourself of daily. When, when your life has taken a turn that you didn't want it to take, Paul says, hang on to the promises of your new identity in Christ and realize that you are his workmanship, his work of art that has been prepared now to do the good works that he has called you to do. So church, be reminded today of the valley that we were all in and the mountaintop of the grace of Christ that has met us. And now we go out to do the good works of Christ, not to be more pleasing to God, but in response to the grace that has flowed down into the depths of every one of our hearts. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving those who are in you, who know you. And Lord, thank you for this wonderful message of the gospel of grace. And Lord, help us now to to take it out and to, to do the good works around us that you've prepared. Lord, give us eyes that see them and give us courage to proclaim, to tell of the great goodness of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.